people will sometimes go and do these annual planning cycles, right? And in, in this digital asset realm, it's like this is a quarter by quarter uh, roadmap because things change all of the time. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, a show where we will learn from today's global leaders that will dominate the 21st century in fintech, business, and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you get your shows. Today, I sit down with Austin Woodward, CEO and co-founder of Taxbit, the leading U.S. tax software provider for crypto and digital assets. Founded in 2017, Taxbit has now issued tens of millions of tax forms and recently became a unicorn with over $230 million in equity raised from top investors like IVP, Inside Partners, Tiger Global, Paradigm, and Anthony Pompliano. In this conversation, Austin and I discuss how his passion for crypto and digital assets led him to launch a billion-dollar business, challenges and opportunities of working with family, and why it made perfect sense to co-found Taxbit with his brother, Justin, working with U.S. regulators and Austin's optimistic vision for the U.S. to become a global hub for crypto, lessons and reflections from raising over $200 million in less than a year, and just a lot more. Hope you enjoy this great FinTech Leaders episode with Austin Woodward from Taxbit. Well, Austin, welcome. I'm excited to talk to you. Um, you know, huge fan of everything you've done and, and the TaxBit team continues to do. Uh, how's it going today, Austin? It's going awesome, Miguel. It's a pleasure to be here. Congrats on the podcast launch. I just heard your story uh, behind the scenes, and this is uh, an awesome endeavor that you're going out and doing, and i um, just grateful to be a supporter. Thank you, man. Thank you. And, and so tell us, where, where are you tuning in from today? Where are you dialing in from? Uh, I'm in Seattle right now. So yeah, we have a big headquarters out in Seattle. And so that's kind of the buildings behind me. <laughs> God, is that uh, your usual stomping ground? Um, no, Salt Lake City, we're also headquartered in. And yeah, we're, we're a little bit all over the place. But yes, I, I actually grew up in Seattle and uh, living, have a house in Utah now. And so we have kind of this dual headquartered model. Nice, nice. Yeah. And I, I want to I want to hear your thoughts in a little bit about the entrepreneurial scene in Utah. But before before we go there, let's actually let's hear about Taxbit, right? Uh, tell us a little bit about the company, the background, and you know, has your original vision from day zero become a reality today? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So I'm a CPA um, by trade, and four years ago became infatuated with digital assets. Uh, at the time, referred to that as cryptocurrency. Uh, now I you know, rarely use the word cryptocurrency because digital assets are so much more encompassing as we're seeing crypto become uh, applicable to fractional real estate, fractional equities, uh, commodities. Um, and then with this NFT craze, which we'll go into, it's going to be expandable to title and property and so many things. So anyways, that's fast forwarding to the conversation. But what gravitated me as a finance nerd per se, was, hey, this is an asset class that can do incredible things. It's going to disrupt 
fintech, unlike anything in our lifetime, that was kind of my thesis, uh, from four perspectives at the time. The first was being able to move things instantaneously from point A to point B, whether that be cross-border um, or just, you know, even domestically, instantaneously. Uh, and we're seeing that with Stripe's announcement, Strike's announcement with Twitter now. Uh, and I personally know that banks and Western unions of the world are shaking in their boots of now you can, you know, beam things from first world to third world countries with no fees. Um, second was just eliminating or compressing the middleman on transaction fees. It was eye-opening to me coming from a corporate finance role. How many hands touch money, right? And how inefficient that system is when blockchain has this immutable transparent ledger that can really reduce the cost. Uh, third is fighting against inflation in impoverished countries. That was always kind of this bullish, maybe wild dream of maybe this will happen. And we're seeing that right now. El Salvador embracing this as a currency. Brazil getting closer and closer talks about serious contemplation on that front. And then fourth is kind of what I alluded to four years ago, knowing that, hey, this isn't just a point of sale currency disruption. This is an actual underlying um, unit of ownership that's going to be extendable to equities and to real estate and to commodities and to everyday assets and make them more accessible to everyone. So that was like my long story thesis of what gravitated me to the field. But looking at it from a finance perspective, it became evident to me that, hey, this is crypto property. It's not cryptocurrency. That's not just in the eyes of the IRS, but 90% of the world's countries out there. Never in our economy have we had an asset that has a cost basis notion to it that has to be tracked across an entire ecosystem because it's used not just for buy, hold, sell, but for point of sale, but for peer to peer, for all the use cases that I just mentioned, um, cross-border remittances and staking now and NFTs and airdrops and forks and, and the like. And so antiquated or I think legacy accounting and tax solutions are just not equipped to handle the voluminous nature and the cost basis notion of this asset. So we set out four years ago to go solve that problem. You know, fast forward to today, to your question, Miguel, it has absolutely moved at a record-breaking speed that even I or no one else uh, thought it would move this quick. We did believe that it was inevitable, but uh, four years later, and we've got all the big institutions now and an amazing run of just wide adoption, not just in, indicated by the price of cryptocurrency, but the actual um, stakeholders of who's implementing this, uh, who's leaning in, and it's almost every organization in the world. So that's fascinating, first of all. And then something that I find interesting is that you're actually doing this with your brother. Yeah. Right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, that is, that is uh, I guess, many generations ago, that was very common, yeah. all right, to do it with family. But today, at least in the startup scene, is not that common, right? So yeah. tell us about the, the challenges and the benefits of doing this with your brother. Yeah, when we looked at the business and said, who are the key people that need to get this off of the ground? Uh, this can't just be built in a box uh, of one of these three groups of people that I'm about to name. It needs to be the three coming together, and that were CPAs, tax attorneys, and world-class software developers and product folks, right? And if you just had one of those three siloed off, I truly believe that the business is not going to grow or be as effective or accurate from a technology solution as the three of those coming together. So for me, having that CPA lens and then coming from a SaaS technology background, uh, you know, an array of world-class product and dev connections, 
okay, where's the legal? Where's the tax attorney, you know, brilliant brains? And sure enough, like my brother, Justin, he's younger and smarter than I am, uh, one of the youngest law grads at University of Chicago ever. And he was working on cryptocurrency tax issues uh, with large Fortune 500s in 2014. So very intimate level experience. So it just came together naturally. Obviously, I think you hit it right on. There are pros and cons associated with starting a business with family. You, you need to have a really strong relationship and have thick skin because the last thing you would want is for that to affect any family dynamic. And being a business owner is brutally transparent and honest. You have to vent and you can't box the things in and hide them. And so that is critical feedback at times. And um, Justin and I have been able to work through that and actually, I think, thrive as uh, we've been really open with each other and know kind of that relationship and the grounding that it's built on. Who convinced who? Oh, I convinced him for sure. I've always been entrepreneurial uh, driven and minded. And so uh, that was a hard sell. One of the hardest sales I've ever had to make. He, you know, was uh, had the world at his fingertips of all the biggest law firms and most prestigious positions and convincing him to take not take a paycheck and move into a basement with me and and start this from the ground up was was a hard sell. I'm, I'm grateful he did. <laughs> Actually, you, you mentioned a basement. Let's, let's hear more about the, those early days, right? Uh, I guess, first of all, tell us about that basement. But more importantly, yeah. you then had to convince a lot of other people to also join you. And uh, over the years, uh, have been very fortunate to interview a lot of entrepreneurs. And everyone tells you that the initial hires are absolutely key, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we didn't go and raise money on an idea initially. It took us about a year uh, to raise money. So the first year, this was being paid for out of, you know, founders' pockets uh, and all the life savings that we've been able to accumulate to throw into this vision. So as you think about that from that perspective, it's how can we do things super cost efficient and like build an MVP and prove product market fit before we sacrifice, you know, everything that we've worked so hard for over, you know, our whole career. So uh, moving into a basement, my father's basement just made sense, right? We're not going to go spend on office space. Um, we're going to be really scrappy and efficient. And I think Utah has incredible stories about that model of where I came from, Qualtrics, um, you know, started in a basement as well with two brother founders, Ryan and Jared, and we've seen what they've been able to create. So great mentors to me as well. Now, um, we're talking on a day uh, where Bitcoin has reached all-time highs, right? 65K, I believe it is. Um, but at the same time, the regulatory landscape, I feel like it's, it's like moving sands, right? I mean, it's, uh, there, there's a lot going on, right? And th we have different examples around the world of, of completely opposite approaches being taken for, uh, by, by certain governments. Um, what's your take on, on the regulatory environment in the U.S., uh, digital assets, I guess? Not just yeah, look, I'm really optimistic here. And I we work with regulators, uh, the IRS, very closely. I think that there's sometimes this misconception that regulators are anti-digital assets uh, in the U.S. That It cannot be farther from the truth, uh, having relationships with these folks. It's just there's a process here to really – the space is moving so quick. And the amount of knowledge that you have to accumulate – look, I'm in this 24-7. This is my full-time job, as is the industry. Well, regulators aren't as much, right? Like they have a lot of other things going on as well. And so being able to keep up with the pace of 
innovation that's happening, it's a challenging job. So I have all the sympathy in the world and respect for what the regulators are doing. They have taken a lean-in pro approach to date. Uh, can we do things better? Absolutely. And we're going to get there. But by no means has it been, no, we need to ban this and we need to you know, regulate it out of existence. I do believe that we are trying to strike the equilibrium in the correct way. And that's going to be a process of working with the industry and everyone and all the constituents in, on that side and regulators coming together and finding middle ground and helping each other and educate each other, both the private sector on what how digital assets work and regulators on you know their perspectives and how they're thinking about things and what are the most impactful uh, impediments to digital assets growth. So it's a work in progress. I think we're making great strides and I foresee the U.S. being a hub for digital asset adoption uh, through responsible regulation. Many people say that regulators misunderstand digital assets and crypto. Sounds like you don't agree with that. There, there's always misunderstandings, right? And the private sector misunderstands regulators. Uh, I think that's fine. Uh, I guess I disagree with the notion that we're just so far on I different sides of the spectrum and the, there's no path to middle ground. I do think that we will find that middle ground and I think regulators are open to it as I do the private sector open to uh, working with them to be able to find that. Let's talk a bit about your your customers, right? Because uh, I, I think, obviously, it's all about the customers. First of all, would love to hear some some case studies, right? Just for listeners to understand yeah. the type of services you're provided. Yeah, absolutely. So our model, you can think of us as a back-end API provider, very much like Stripe, right? Where we said... We want to solve the tax problem in a way where users don't even know. They can go about their everyday lives, and at the end of the year, all of their sources that they've used, exchanges, FIs, uh, custodian providers, they hand you what you need at year end, and you can interact with their software that you're using already on a day-to-day -day basis to see your real-time uh, tax impact of your trade. So think of us as the provider that powers the tax center tab within the cryptocurrency broker or FI or middleman or lending platform. Uh, and so we're kind of that white labeled millions of users use TaxBit every day without knowing. Um, so really, I think a marquee list of customers, great customers uh, that we're continuing to publish and roll out as these implementations have gone, gone live. BlockFi is one that we announced a few months ago. Uh, and it's really cool and world class and super innovative what you can go do within that tax center tab on BlockFi. You can harvest losses automatically. And so it's not just getting your tax forms at year end. TaxBit's really helping the average everyday person use cryptocurrency responsible throughout the year. So that way they're saving money on taxes while appreciating um, wealth over the long term. And so it sounds like you, you're, you're a B2B to C, right? Because yeah. you, you have this partnerships, but then you also are serving the consumer. Who are you talking to the most to improve the product? Are you talking to, let's say, BlockFi and their team? Or are you talking to the end user who yeah. might not even know they're using Taxi, but at the end of the day, there's millions of them? Three, three constituents. It's the uh, enterprises um, that were our, our paying customers, the end users of those enterprises, and then regulators, the government and the IRS. So it's kind of that three-in-a-box model, and I think that's where TaxBits really thrived, uh, is coming at it from that perspective as opposed to focusing on just one, because I think you're missing so many pieces of the puzzle uh, without putting those three in a box. And, and how about... Uh... You know, how did you land the IRS? They're, they're a big client. Yeah. 
Look, it's relationship building over years, right? And it's gaining their trust and working as a trusted practitioner. Um, yeah, I think it's just there's no magic sauce to entrepreneurship. It's pounding doors, being resilient, and building relationships and coming at it from a, I think, learning perspective, right? And we want to build around clients' needs and learn what those are and be adaptable to the customer. Yeah, could could not agree more. Nothing replaces hard work and and that hustle, right? How many people today at Taxpit in total? Yeah, we're, we're we crossed a hundred, so we're uh, over a hundred now. I don't know. We're adding five or six a week, so maybe one ten. Uh, we'll be close to two hundred by the end of the year. So fortunate to be in hyper growth mode. But that's I think evidenced by also the industry. The whole industry is in hyper growth mode right now, and so uh, investing resources to keep up and on the pace of innovation in this ecosystem is just critical. So Austin, you, you mentioned hyper-growth mode. A couple of episodes ago, I, I had Laura Speakerman from Alloy, who was saying, was mentioning her experience of being also in hyper-growth, that once they've established a couple of processes and they've hired the right person for a job, three, four months later, it's all irrelevant because right? <laughs> you, you've doubled the size of the company and now you have to figure it out all again. Uh, tell us about your experience dealing with, I guess, all the challenges of hyper growth. That's exactly right, Miguel. You said it perfect. And, you know, people will sometimes go and do these annual planning cycles, right? And in, in this digital asset realm, it's like this is a quarter by quarter uh, roadmap because things change all of the time. And obviously, it's important to have that long term vision. Taxbit was built with a long term vision of facilitating information reporting from the top. But knowing that your processes and systems and people today are going to break and they're not going to be the things you can use tomorrow. And so from an entrepreneurial mindset, it's incredibly challenging because you might feel like, oh, we finally got this. We're smooth sailing. Then oh, we need to rip it all out and start over to do it in a different way uh, to keep up with the needs of customers ultimately uh, and, and the needs of you know where the, the market is going. And so I think that adaptability and always going out of your comfort zone uh, and being willing to change is a key element that any founder should possess. And Austin, when you think of your leadership style, right, uh, leading now, you know, close to 200 people, at least by the end of the year, first of all, what inspired you to develop your style and how would you describe it? I learned so much of uh, my style and who I am from my prior experience at Qualtrics, right? I think learned so much from Ryan and mentors there uh, that are close friends to this day. Um, I think for me, we have this mantra at Taxbit that the best leaders hire people better than yourself, right? And so if you can inspire people, leaders do not need to be the smartest and brightest people in the room, uh, but they need to be able to be the best uh, storytellers and inspirers and managers and blocker removers, right? And so that's what we've really leaned into at Taxbit, where I'm surrounded by a leadership team that is better than I am. And I'm just here to facilitate, remove blockers, help them be successful and grow their teams. And so I think that's 
my style is one of autonomy, uh, one of close collaboration, but by no means dictatorship or micromanaging. Uh, you're, we're just moving too fast. There's no time for that. And I think so many entrepreneurs, it's hard, right? In the early days, I could not say that I possessed this. I wanted to be involved in every nick and cranny, and it's important. But as you grow, uh, it's really critical that you empower and, and you trust your team. You've also grown your uh, your capital base, right? You have you have an impressive list of investors. I was I was looking at the list. It's both traditional venture capital funds, but also some of the hardcore, you know, digital investors, crypto investors. How was that process, right? I was uh, raising hundreds of millions of dollars, and <laughs> what would yeah, yeah? It's not it's not it's not chunk change. Well, Miguel, maybe I should like take it back uh, four years and kind of talk about that side of the house. I think lots of aspiring entrepreneurs out there might say, wow, like what would it be like to raise so much money? And I was one of those. I look back in 2018, I'm like, how does a business raise a $30 million Series A? Imagine what we could do with $30 million. 2018, I literally lived in every city uh, out there and I was knocking doors, quite frankly, knocking VCs doors. We were out of money. Uh, it was like, I'm about to like fund this personally with the little money that I have remaining or we just need to close shop. And at that time, Bitcoin is trading around $3,000. So cryptocurrency in general is a pie in the sky idea. Layer on taxes at the time. And that's a complete oxymoron. Not many, if any, VCs saw the vision. Hundreds of rejections, you know, day after day, just come home and tell my wife, nah, shitty day again, like just no progress for months and months. Like this, this could be the end. Right. And so what was critical was staying focused and staying the course. We knew it was a matter of time. This is not an if, but a win. And let's just stay intimately focused on building. I think that was a competitive advantage where not many competitors entered the market (laughs) because who is going to go into this crappy niche market that you're probably not going to make it. And then it just takes one, right? And so that seed round, we're fortunate to find a, a firm in Atlanta that took a risk uh, and, and, you know, kept us alive, right? And then we just kept building. 2019, a grind, like, again, like, wanted to be opportunistic on raising money, not a chance, right? 2020, all right, things are starting to rebound and recover. We see there, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but let's just stay focused. Let's do build what our customers want and sell. And then, you know, sure enough, 2021 comes and the absolute title wave of, of digital assets and cryptocurrency is at full force and momentum. And at that time, all kind of the leverage flips. And it's like, no, this is a business that is the key building block of the next uh, fintech application layer of society. Um, this now they were business. knocking on your door. Correct. Yeah, and exactly. And, I, and uh, there's story after story where many on our cap table today are the same firms that told me no in 2018, right? And so um, it, it's just staying resilient, staying persistent, and staying focused. And then any entrepreneur will obviously uh, ascribe uh, timing and luck as well um, to, to, I think, the business. And, and we were definitely fortunate to just be at the right plot, spot at the right time. So it sounds like you could be based in, in basically any large metro area in the, in the country, in the U.S. Why Utah? Let's, let's talk about the entrepreneurial Utah scene because there's a fintech wave moving there. There's a feels like there's great energy in Utah. So uh, tell us about your experience. 
Look, I, I think I described this a little bit at the beginning of the podcast. Like this was self-funded initially. And so the dollar goes a long way in Utah. And I think Utah just has a really scrappy tech ecosystem. Uh, and what is happening in Utah, you know, some people call it Silicon Slopes now as a play on on Silicon Valley, is really fascinating to watch where people are, I think, very entrepreneurial minded and, and very resource uh, lean and, and scrappy and are willing to take risks. And I think prior to COVID, it was a huge competitive advantage to build a business in Utah. Post, as we move into a more remote world, obviously, I think the dollar uh, going a long ways is now more accessible to every business of where you're lo- wherever you're located. But there is something palpable in the air in Utah uh, of tech entrepreneurship and, and just people rooting each other on and trying to move in the right direction as a state as a whole, which is really cool to see. And so it made sense for us. From the beginning all the way through, some of the best go-to-market talent in the world is in Utah. I think Qualtrics proved that out very well. And then, uh, like I alluded, it's we're not just Utah. We went to Seattle because some of the best product and engineering talent in the world is in Seattle. And so I think TaxBit has done things a little bit differently from your traditional tech company from the beginning. Um, that we, We're not like your traditional Harvard Business School playbook case study of how we've got to where we are, but rather have done things untraditional and it's, wor- it's worked out for us. Austin, I don't want to end the podcast without hearing some of your lessons learned, particularly as an entrepreneur. You've probably made uh, a couple of mistakes along the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's, let's hear about, you know, is there one that really stands out and what did you learn from it? Oh, man. Um, so many. Uh, I think hard to put my finger on just one, uh, honestly. I think... Um, I could just, yeah, there's a, there's a book that could be written, but I think above all else, uh, the biggest uh, overarching lesson of the mistakes is just humility and just knowing like, look, every entrepreneur, people I think sometimes view entrepreneurs as capes, wearing capes and they're superhuman and Superman and uh, they were just born with DNA in their blood to go out and, and be an entrepreneur. I don't think that's the case. I think entrepreneurs are everyday people that are humble and they're willing to take risks and they're willing to make sacrifices and they're willing to be just crazy, like literally crazy and resilient and and never give up and and just fighters, right? And so as you go through that, humility is a key aspect because you're going to fall on your face a lot and there's nothing more humbling than being an entrepreneur. Every day, it is so encompassing. It becomes your DNA. It's your 24-7. It's all consuming. And when you fail, like it, it, you take that personally, right? Because that's who you are. It's not just your business failing. It's you as a person failing in, in a sense because your company becomes your identity. And so just learning that that's okay, that everyone has failed on their journey to greatness uh, is a big lesson and just being humble to get back up. Last question before we let you go, Austin. Um, if you think of the most consequential people in your entrepreneurial journey, who comes to mind? Yeah, a few people right away. Obviously, the the whole Qualtrics mafia and uh, and just great mentors that I had there, um, and just amazing rock stars that are working with me right now at Taxbit from kind of that Qualtrics DNA. It's really special. Uh, also, just some of the early investors that took a chance on us, right? Like a local firm in Utah, Album VC and Diogo, and uh, when all of the the world was saying that this was a crazy idea, why are you leaving Qualtrics to do this? Um, and those early folks that 
that, you know, took a bet. It's really cool to, to see and rewarding for me personally to have been able to come through for them and also uh, just become lifelong friends with those folks. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I just can't thank our customers enough. Like, it, it's a risk to take a chance on a early stage company when you've got the Thomson Reuters and the big, you know, dogs in the market that, you know, are more reputable and longer standing in the market and the early customer adoption that we have, I've become lifelong friends with, with those folks. And they've just been critical to TaxBit success. And it's rewarding for me to see the bets that they made on TaxBit pay off as their businesses are sustaining a competitive advantage by using TaxBit technology uh, versus a more antiquated legacy solution. So I think those three groups of people is, uh, you know, people I worked with and VCs and then customers. Well, Austin, I think this whole conversation is a lesson on entrepreneurship and resilience. So thank you for stopping by. Uh, really honored you, you join. And I guess I will see you in Vegas. Yep, let's do it, Miguel. Congrats again on your entrepreneurial journey with the podcast. Really cool what you're doing. Thanks for tuning in. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Austin. He is truly a leader in his space, and I later had the chance to meet him in person in Vegas for the Money 2020 conference, and I was even more impressed with his vision. This one is certainly one to watch. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the amazing editor, Rafael Ostria, for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.